All right, welcome to another week of Legal Tech Week uh, for May 29th, 2020. This is Bob Ambrogi, and I am joined once again by our uh, eminent panel of legal journalists, legal tech journalists here to talk about the week's news. Um, let's go around and introduce ourselves once again for those who uh, may not know us. Molly, let's start with you. Hi, I'm Molly McDonough. I am a, a media consultant and a legal affairs journalist based in the Chicago area. Zach? Had to unmute myself, everybody. I'm Zach Warren. I'm editor-in-chief of ALM's Legal Tech News, and I am based in the Twin Cities of Minnesota. And Caroline. Hi there, Caroline Hill, editor of Legal IT Insider, aka Orange Rag, uh, based in the UK. Joe. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, Joe Patrice uh, from Above the Law and uh, Cash Cab Champion. So, yeah. And Nikki. <laughs> Nikki Black. I'm the legal technology evangelist with my case uh, and a legal tech columnist at AVA Journal, Above the Law, Daily Record, and I also blog regularly on the My Case blog. So that, so Joe, you just hit it. I mean, that's the big story of the week, right? <laughs> Joe Patrice, star of Cash Cab. And what's, what's, what's actually surprised me about this is how many people have no idea what Cash Cab is because I'm such a Cash Cab fan. So it, it, it's been interesting because I've, I've found that there's um, more people who don't know what it is and more people who did know what it was and had real feelings about it than I thought. Uh, yeah, Cash Cab was a show, a game show that ran for several years in uh, based in New York where unsuspecting people were got into cabs thinking they were going somewhere and lights would come on and then it was a game show and the cabbie would ask you questions uh, for money while you uh, did your ride. And if you didn't, if you missed questions, you got kicked out of the cab. So uh, that happened. Uh, they, they've rebooted the show. It's now on Bravo uh, after several years off the air. And uh, yeah, um, me as well as uh, some other above the law people, uh, columnist Stephanie Wilkins and uh, editor Captain Rubino, as well as a person who has no above the law connection whatsoever, <laughs> happened to all be um, hailing a cab when we ended up in the cash cab. So our episode aired uh, like last week or so. And uh, yeah. So unfortunately, it's like burst, burst several of my bubbles because when I saw that, I was, I was Googling cash cab to find out how it had come back and I missed it. And I came across this Wikipedia entry that told me all this behind the scenes stuff that maybe you're not supposed to talk about, but stuff like that people don't actually, they don't actually just sort of randomly pick people up off the street. And even worse, they don't actually give you cash at the end of the ride. Well, for, they, they do randomly pick people up, uh, up off the street from time to time, but obviously, you know, that, that's somewhat hit or miss. So it's not, you, you know, you're not guaranteed with an expensive television crew to get people who are willing. So yeah, there's, you do not know you're going on cash cab. I will say that absolutely. But they they can have some sneaky ways of making you think you're doing something else, and then bam, all of a sudden you're on cash cab. Yeah. All right. So, how, how, so Joe, how did you yeah. get on? Um, I was recruited in a bar. Uh, they some people were in a bar, said they were casting for something, and they handed out a little sheet, and I filled it out, and they called me back, and then. I was kind of, not to blow up their, their thing, but I thought I was doing some activity that was uh, like a charity-ish related activity that was gonna be a thing, you know, like, but they, they come up with these stories to keep people not knowing why. Uh, and then they told us 
you know, meet here and then your next clue is going to take you to this other place. And that's why we are in the cab asking to go where we go. I'm my one regret about the show is that they cut out my favorite line, which was as soon as uh, it, they revealed it was cash cab. And after we'd said we wanted to go 20 blocks, I said, Oh, in that case, we want to go to JFK. And they did not, they not only said no, but they cut it out of the episode. So. <laughs> All right. Well, I don't, I don't know where to start this week, but I mean, it seems like, uh, Zach, you are kind of right there in the... In the oh, man, you want a tonal that. shift, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Go from cash cab to... Um, yeah. From the maelstrom from the... Yeah, we, we were emailing back and forth uh, before the event today. And I, I mean, like I said at the top, I am located in the Twin Cities of Minnesota. I personally am in St. Paul, not too far from where businesses on University Avenue were uh, looted and set fire to yesterday. I also know some people in South Minneapolis, uh, very close to police precinct that went up in flames. Um, so that is what I am thinking of this week, but to put a legal tech spin on it, uh, especially we talk a lot about civil law here, but from the criminal law perspective, the preponderance of video and video evidence increasingly making its way into trial is extremely interesting to me because I mean, video has been a part of trial as long as there's been TV, there's been camera crews that have been, uh, looking at things and have uh, introduced that evidence in the trial. But the fact that anybody with a phone today can be somebody who is collecting evidence for an eventual trial, and there are so many people with the capability to do so, I think is not only good for access to justice, because the more availability of evidence, the greater chance, at least in my view, that justice can be served, but also there are some privacy implications for that. And I know there's been a discussion on Twitter and such this morning that what role do does news play in trying to like broadcast who protesters are and um, just in terms of like filming the uh, cops who were uh, well today arrested. Um, it, there are so many implications to this, but the fact that video is everywhere now is something that lawyers are going to have to contend with because it's not going away. This stuff is increasingly going to be not only videoed, but live streamed. And you're going to have to respond very quickly to videos that are going to be out there. Um, I don't know if I have a coherent point in there. I just find it very interesting. <laughs> Well, one thing that's super interesting that, you know, you mentioned the intersection of um, the video and the tech and the criminal, uh, you know, criminal law is there is a, um, is the increasing amount of tech, these like the public defenders and the DA's offices are inundated with it. They have to sift through. There's a member of, I chair the technology committee at our local bar association. And one of our newest members is a guy who works for the public defender's office that I started my career at. And he initially was a public defender. And over time, he's always had an interest in tech he programs. And over time, he became the go-to guy for tech questions. And he eventually created his own position. And they're now hiring someone else to work with him. And all he does is sift through all this kind of tech, 
take the phones apart, see where the people were standing when the videos were, you know what I mean, or the angles, and but also all the other types of tech as well. And that's increasingly becoming, there was a New York Times article on it, it's increasingly becoming a position in both offices, the PAs and the um, PAs, DAs and the PDs, because this is truly becoming part of criminal cases. And there must be such big questions over reliability. So, so obviously, in cases like the one we're talking about, it's so fortunate um, to have this evidence. But I guess there's a real question over, you know, with all the deep fake stuff that, that we're having to worry about. I guess there's going to be that issue to, to, to how, how do they, how are they going to be able to, I, I think they're going to be huge issues over it. But, but thank, you know, obviously in this case, it's been such a great thing that the evidence is there. Yeah, I definitely think so. And kind of to your point too, Nikki, as I was tracking all of this, I mean, for COVID reasons as much as anything else, I have not been out of my house and I have no plans to be out of my house. So I was trying to track as much as I can from Twitter and other sources. But one of the main sources I saw was honestly Snapchat videos. And there are locations within Snapchat that you can go on a map and click or Instagram videos too, you can click what has happened in this location, what has happened in this location. And the target by me was blowing up with Instagram videos yesterday. So there's location services baked into all of this as well. And there's so much for people to sort through. Um, it's kind of overwhelming, I feel. Yeah, I'm just do also happy. Uh, yeah, well, I was just curious if, if um, especially with that last comment, Zach, just whether we'll see if you can anticipate uh, you know, requests for some of these companies to for um, social media access, be, uh, especially uh, with the the burnings and, and lootings. Uh, I, I've seen some of the media coverage and some of the shots and you can, you know, a lot of people are wearing masks, but a lot of people are not wearing masks or not wearing them very well. And that and what you're talking about, Nikki, too, is, you know, that law enforcement uses that as a as a way to identify um, potential offenders. That happened with the, our recent London Bridge attack. I think a lot of the evidence came from bystanders, and, and they were asking for them to send in their video footage, which obviously was a lot. Yeah, so yeah, that's another example. Yeah, and that that famously happened after the the Boston Marathon bombing, where they just collected tons and tons of of everybody's you know cell phone <laughs> pictures and whatever else, and pieced it all together. I mean, this was also the week in which the ACLU. In, in Illinois, I think it was, sued uh, Clearview, which is the company that's basically, you know, uh, developed this, this face recognition technology that's mining our social media so that law enforcement agencies can use it uh, to uh, find people that they're looking for, to, to, to pin down suspects and whatever. Uh, it, you know, and it's also the week in which we had this, uh, you know, this, this, this Central Park uh, uh, video episode where you know, one the, the one person is using video defensively while the other person is effectively weaponizing it in in, in some way. It, it's just a bizarre week for uh, for for tech in that sense. Yeah, and the problem with the um, Clearview in particular, I really follow all this intersection of privacy and um, the, the criminal law and law enforcement because of my background. And Clearview in particular is so problematic because. Not only are they getting this data in a questionable way, but a, the, the way that the law enforcement is just taking this so quickly and buying it from them and using it, AI is inherently biased. I mean, the, the programming of it, it you know, does not recognize um, people of color. 
it doesn't recognize them accurately at all. It doesn't recognize women's faces. It's designed to identify white men accurately is really what happens. And so, you know, the, you know, the case that everyone always uses that's so interesting is when I um, think it was ACLU ran, um, used Amazon's AI facial detection um, and ran Congress through it to match it up with mugshots. And the vast majority of people of color in Congress were matched up with mugshots and identified as potential criminals. Which you know, is but, weird because most of the white guys in Congress actually do have records. <laughs> right. So, but yeah. it's so problematic, and it's. I'm yeah. glad the ACLU suing them because that's got to be. Yeah. Kept under well, control. Well, Illinois is friendly to that kind of a suit, right? Don't they have that really? It, I'm vaguely remembering they have that fairly aggressive uh, law about privacy that that says you can't do facial recognition and stuff like that, right? Isn't well, that Illinois? BIPA, the Biometric Act, which is yeah, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Was mm-hmm. um, that's what I meant. Yep. Yeah, yeah, and that that applies to pretty much all biometrics. So I would assume the facial recognition. That's why they're suing in Illinois specifically. Yeah. So so uh, Minneapolis is is uh, burning. Uh, the the nation's undergoing a pandemic, and our president is focusing his attention on Twitter. <laughs> Waging war against Twitter. Always with the right priorities. 2020. Uh, Nikki, you want, you want to talk a little bit about that. Do you want to, you want to say something about that? Well, you know, it, it, I mean, the minute that Twitter started labeling as tweets, that was groundbreaking. I mean, for them to do that to anyone, let alone the president. And they're doubling down now. Now that he's um, signed that executive order, which I am not, I know that there's a couple of other people here that may be able to speak a little more co, uh, co cogently about that order itself in the section 250 that it refers 230. to. But 230. Yeah. 230. I was, see, I can't even get the section right. <laughs> but um, you know, the, for me, it was more the the just that this social media company was taking a stand. And then the other super interesting thing that's happening is, you know, Zuckerberg came out and said, "Oh, it's not our job to be the arbiter of the truth." And now there's all those really funny memes going around with headlines like Mark Zuckerberg, you know, Ch- child, child molester Mark Zuckerberg dies at 36. Right. Or, you know, says that Facebook isn't supposed to be the arbiter of the truth, you know, so it's interesting to see that whole reaction. But, uh, you know, and, and the other thing that someone said that I thought was super telling was, you know, we're in the middle of this huge pandemic and the president sits around and doesn't do anything for the most part for months and months and months. But as soon as Twitter slaps something on one of his tweets, he's got an executive order ready the next day. So it just, this whole concept of priorities, it's just stunning <laughs> kind yeah. of what we're living in. And it feels a little bit surreal, but I yeah. know there's also some legal issues to address. And if someone else wants to run with those, I just wanted to make some commentary. <laughs> well, I, mean, I, I just think one of the most interesting things is it, it just appears that he's absolutely shooting himself in the foot with the with the executive order that if if in fact he he um requires internet companies of any kind whether it's twitter or or facebook or whatever else to be more diligent in their policing of of content on their sites then uh and and to be more responsible for content on their sites then then is what they're going to have to do is, is is block him all that much more uh, and, and impose more restraints on, on what he says. So that, I don't even get, I don't even, I just don't understand it. Not that I ever. And that's the takeaway that a lot of people have had. And I think that, I think that that certainly he's using that sort of rhetoric and that's what the rhetoric of like Josh Hawley and people like that have said. But I think 
it misses that his his order itself, which has a bunch of other legal issues we can get into, but the way in which he's phrased this order is actually a little different that avoids that, I think. And we're and I think a lot of people are grouping it together because so Section 230, for people who don't know, uh, is part of the Communication Decency Act. And it says basically that if you provide a platform that people who aren't you can interact on, you're not responsible for what they say. So and you know, like it's what allows Facebook to have com- people post things and Twitter have comments, whatever. That's not entirely a blanket rule. There's a kind of a good faith standard as there, I mean, lawyers, we, 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 we threw some negligence standard onto everything, but there's, so long as you don't say, I'm starting a website called Defamation R Us, put everything you want up, you basically can not be liable for what other people say. So his anger at Twitter is weird to make this a Section 230 issue because Twitter saying we think this is a lie has nothing to do with 230. That's just them saying what they want to say. Right. And that's the and that's the crux. So he's going after 230, but he's not if he were to say we should not have section 230, which means that Twitter would have to worry they'd be sued every time he says Joe Scarborough murdered somebody, something else he said this week then Twitter would be worried that Joe Scarborough might sue them too, and they would block him. But that's not what this order tries to do. He, buried in everything, what the order actually says is not individuals should be able to sue the platforms for defamation that other people do, but the Department of Justice should be able to sue the platform if the platform isn't acting in good faith. And they want to redefine good faith and say, if you are only putting slapping uh, lie orders on us, then that's wrong. And we want the DOJ to go after you, not random person who feels defamed to go after you. And that distinction is where it doesn't blow back and hurt Trump because he controls the DOJ and Bill Barr gets to decide who gets sued. Right. That yeah, that's a, interesting. A very important note for anybody who's enterprising out there. The domain name, Defamation R Us, is available. <laughs> so if you want it, go for it. Excellent. So good. All right. I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad somebody had the, the time to look that up. I got this weird thing with Zoom where basically my computer crashes when I try to use the internet and Zoom. So I, I'm glad someone else was on that. Yeah, I'm, I'm having a worry about that myself. Any other, anybody else? Any other thoughts? I mean, uh, it's Caroline, a, politics is so so sane over in, in London. You don't have to deal with any of these issues, right? Well, we. So I, <laughs> I look at. I love looking at Trump's tweets, and and then I think my favorite thing is looking at all of the replies and and, and trying to gauge who's 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 sort of in favor of him and and who's anti. And mostly they seem to be very negative responses, you know. And then you get the odd person saying we love Trump, <laughs> but the, the the replies is it's just yeah. As a, as a not for someone who's not living in the US, it's we we have our own issues for sure. Um, definitely the worst handling of the coronavirus with <laughs> accolade. Um, but yeah, he. It, I mean, it just seems that, so. It, it's a bla- he is posting blatant lies. I mean, there's and it, it's. I think, I think they've done the right thing. Um, and his, his behavior just becomes more erratic, doesn't it, as, as time goes on. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, that's politics rather than tech. <laughs> Pure yeah. politics. Yeah. The other thing I thought is really interesting about it is just such a great teaching mechanism for what the First Amendment is. Like, no one understands it. They don't understand that it's a government act, or Trump clearly doesn't understand it. <laughs> you know, and at the end of the day, he's actually, arguably, the in some ways the order that he signed, it, it, his intent is, I don't know if it will be successful, but is to 
police what is said on social networks, which that is what triggers the um, First Amendment is the government action in that way, not the, the social networks trying to just provide accurate information about what the government says on social networks. So it's interesting right. how it's a sort of a good teaching point, but it doesn't really get through. <laughs> Never yeah. seems to. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, this is why Zuckerberg is on board with what's going on, because several months ago, Zuckerberg brought some Republican operatives on and said, how would you like our algorithm changed? And they made recommendations that they took. So when you when you see this Section 230 attack as they just want to change, they want to use Section 230 as the kind of the, the cudgel and say, we'll take this away from you unless you agree that what good faith means is you're nice to us. You can see that Zuckerberg's like, I already made that deal. Uh, and so that's why you would assume he would come to Twitter's defense and he hasn't. And that's why he's already made this deal. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's, uh, Molly, what do you have this week? Uh, so something that was on my list last week that I had a chance to kind of dig a little deeper into, um, I, a lot of the original reporting um, or the initial reports from um, uh, legal media in particular uh, focused on this first Zoom trial out of Texas. Um, it was a non-binding jury trial. Um, and a lot of it focused on this one juror who um, went MIA uh, <laughs> to take a phone call. Um, and it and it was actually during the right. selection process. So it was just kind of like it was that seemed to be what the story was. Um, but when um, I, I had a chance to listen to the National Center for State Courts webinar um, on lessons learned uh, on the jury process as, as uh, courts are reopening and uh, social distancing and and hybrids are being tried out. And the one of the judges who she referred to herself as the high tech bailiff. Um, in the in that case, um, they had a presiding judge, and then her as the high tech bailiff went through a lot of the lessons learned, and it was fascinating, um, including you know they did a lot of uh, studying of, of uh, what the jurors thought about the process, uh, and one of the and they asked the jurors who had served on panels before what they thought, and they loved the process because they got to see the evidence much more clearly than they would in an in an in um, a regular courtroom setting. And they also got to see the witnesses face on, uh, which I thought was very, really interesting. And uh, the lawyers had a similar reaction. Um, you know, they were skeptical at first, but, you know, going through the process and, and being familiar with the, the Zoom, they use Zoom platform. Um, they uh, also felt like they were able to get more uh, forthcoming answers from the uh, prospective jurors when they were seating them. Um, I also like that they were able to use the Zoom rooms, so they uh, separated the lawyers and the judge um, off into a room so they could have their sidebars, um, which actually is going to be a huge challenge when courts go back into session doing kind of social distancing with sidebars. Can you even have those? I, some of the judges are saying no, um, right. they're going to eliminate sidebars um, or, you know, have to, you know, go into another room and social distance. Right. Um, so it was just, it was really interesting to see. So they had, you know, the, the panel and then they would select the jurors and put them in a new room. Um, and I, I just thought it was, it was a really kind of a, an interesting experience. Um, although they acknowledged a lot of things that they would need to work on, including, you know, how do you have a bailiff who usually 
deals with, you know, a knock on the door if there's an issue. Um, you know, does the judge, the high tech bailiff or judge go back, go into the courtroom, you know, I mean, into the jury deliberations to help solve technical problems without, um, you know, violating the sanctity of the, those proceedings. Um, lots of little issues. I just thought it was, it was, it was really interesting and kind of back to points we've talked about before, which is, um, these webinars that the, uh, that the, especially the National Center for State Courts and the rapid response team uh, from the uh, um, Conference of Chief Justices, I think it is, uh, is really, and state court administrators, is really great. They, I mean, they, they had these judges from all over the country. Um, the, on this panel, they had uh, judges from uh, Miami, um, Oregon, to Florida, Oregon, um, Massachusetts, Texas, and Missouri. And they're all doing something, either in person or hybrid or you know some other format. And they and a lot of the experiences that they talked about with the uh, with the jury, the uh, non-binding case in Texas, um, they're using similar approaches with grand juries in Missouri. Um, and they've even discovered feel like they've that they're on solid ground statutorily holding. Um, a grand jury virtually, because the only constitutional requirement is that the uh, grand jury be assembled. It doesn't say it doesn't yeah. say in person. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that, but, but he cautioned the, the framers the weren't thinking about Zoom. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they were not thinking about Zoom, <laughs> but that's vague enough. <laughs> it's so it's striking assembly. that, like, when I'm listening to you talk about that, if you had asked me in January. Would all these judges be getting together and talking yeah. about the ins and outs of doing jury trials on a video conferencing? I would say, well, what, what is wrong with you? Are you nuts? That's not going to happen in a million years. And look at where we are. And and even, lot, even if you had asked in March, in March or so, I mean, if, whether you would be doing, you know, how you would feel about doing jury, if you ever did jury trials online, how you would feel about it. And, and what I'm hearing you say, Molly, is that, there was a, they, you know, they saw a lot of good in this. Whereas yeah. if you just asked them two months ago, they would have said, there's no way that would ever work. That, that's just right. not, and, not a possibility. And, you know, and I just want, I want to clarify that everybody that I've listened to, every single judge says that they're not all cases are going to be able to be handled um, by remote access. Yeah. You know, there has to be some type of in-person and they're, yeah. you know, I mean, they're thinking everything down to, you know, if you don't have the bandwidth, they, they're already thinking through, um, you know, they have jury administrators on these calls and in, and involved in these processes. And, you know, they're making sure that they're getting diverse pools. So, you know, that includes people with no um, broadband or uh, Wi-Fi access. So they have to make, so they're already coming up with accommodation. So, you know, maybe everybody's remote on some of these kind of lower level um, proceedings that need a jury, but, um, you know, the stakes aren't high, like felony cases or life on the line um, type stuff. Um, but, but they're, you know, they're able to um, come up with a way to have those people who don't have access come to the court yeah. <laughs> you know, or, have, or be accommodated. It's just about developing better protocol and processes, right? Like they're not as, you know, just tweet and actually given how quickly they've, they've achieved this, that's pretty incredible.
Yeah, I really that's what's so interesting to me, just the pace of change of all this, because I know a few of us here have talked with uh, Richard Susskind, and his book on virtual courts came out last fall, and when we were talking with him, we said, oh, okay, so what's the timeline for these virtual courts actually being instituted? He said, well, if we can get it in the next decade, then I'm really feeling good about this. Well, success. I mean, we got there within the next decade, just a lot quicker because of the necessity. So when there is the need there, it does show that law can be quickly updated when it needs to. And, and yeah, what's also and interesting about that is that is that uh, Suskind, because um, I interviewed him recently on my podcast also, and when he talks about virtual courts, he's not talking about trials. He's talking about this this other kind of basically paper based, like motion, almost like motion practice or, you know, appellate practice. And I specifically asked him about, you know, why, why wasn't he calling for online, you know, for trials to be taking place online. And he said, Oh, you know, I, I just don't see that that's what we need to do. It's, it's, we always want to have trials be physical. You know, I, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but he said something to that effect. Um, so, you know, I'm really interested in the aspect of this about how jurors can now see witnesses face on which, you know, going back to law school and everything, like the, so much of the American legal system is based on the idea that you can't disrupt the jury's decision because they were there to judge whether or not that person was lying or telling the truth. And then you look at the geography of the courtroom and they're usually stuck in a corner, barely can see the person head on, like have no idea. And if you really believe what behavioral psychologists would suggest that, you can understand somebody mostly by looking at them. It seems as though this is probably the first time that juries have ever really been reliable. Um, but I mean, that's a that's a whole different. If there's some enterprising lost lost professor who wants to write their paper on it, by all means, this is your inspiration. Uh, but somebody should get into that because I think that's that's the interesting angle to me. Yeah, that I you know as a a former courts reporter sitting in in um, the the gallery uh, covering trials, you know, I, it's it's a very different experience watching the proceedings on on video, and you know, it's also extremely different from um, than cameras in the court. You know, when you have cameras in the courtroom, they're still way in the back or you know bird's eye view kind of thing. You're not you don't have that in most of the cameras in the court uh, experiences, you don't have that personal face um, head on um, view of what's happening. So it's definitely a more intimate, a much more intimate, oddly, <laughs> experience to, you know, be face to face with, uh, with the witness. And uh, so I, 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 I hadn't even thought about that until I started hearing these judges talk about the experiences of the jurors. And yeah, it, that's a radical change. Um, in, in any of the proceedings. And we heard, I think we talked about it maybe a couple of weeks ago with the Supreme Court, the, the feeling of equality uh, among the, the, um, the, folk, the lawyers arguing because their, their uh, photos are this, their picture frames are the same size. There's, you know. It's, counter, it's counterintuitive, isn't it? That, that there's this, it's, it's improved things, but you, you, you would certainly not expect that. And on the um, on, on the Supreme Court level, uh, that's maybe some breaking news that the uh, that the bipartisan heads of the Judiciary Committee just sent a letter telling Judge, Chief Justice Roberts that, in their opinion, they're they really want him to continue with this. Um, 
he'll probably say no, but um, that's what they, they put out there. Right. So, uh, Caroline, what about you? What's, uh, what was the news for you this week? Well, it seems to miniature compared to a lot of these sort of high-level issues that we've been talking about, but actually it's really big news in terms of, say, Oracle. Um, Kent Little, UK Top 100 law firm, has become the first um, firm to sign up to uh, Oracle's new ERP, um, the pure legal tech story, obviously. Um, and uh, so Oracle at the turn of the century, um, they did look like they were going to enter the legal tech market. They, um, they actually are still in use at, at Clifford Chance, um, it's the basis of their PM practice management system. Um, they've done this deal, so Kempnish, so they, they announced, Oracle announced at the beginning of 2019 that they were launching this new ERP. Um, obviously, obviously Oracle's huge. It's quite good news in terms of its you know, competition in, the, in, in, a, in a sector of the market that needs more competition. Um, but there was a lot of there were a lot of questions. I actually went to the launch um, meeting, um, and there was a lot of lack of detail. There still, I think, is quite a lack of detail to be honest with you, and really not clear. And and um, and, and there's lots of questions. But but anyway, Kemp they they've um, they've signed up. Um, at possibly the worst time possible in terms of launching a big system like this. Um, so they had, they, um, I spoke to them a few weeks ago and didn't write about it immediately because it was as COVID hit and it just didn't feel appropriate to be honest with you, just because everyone was talking about COVID and I just thought it would be wasted to be perfectly honest. But um, and uh, so they, um, there, there are, there are going to be some delays, but. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's potentially good news. I think they're going to be a real test case. Um, obviously, Oracle will be hoping that they're the start of, you know, this, of, of um, this taking off. Um, it's not the right, it's not a great time. But, um, and the and, uh, the other interesting things are they, so there's always this sort of question over, do, do, do firms need an Oracle type system? Um, and uh, so what, speaking to um, the, the person leading this, is their uh, head of innovation or chief digital officer, Gerard Frith. Um, and he was saying, well, a lot of other professional services firms are using Oracle ELP, um, just because we're a law firm, it doesn't matter. Um, actually, th there, are, there are reasons why I mean, he obviously gets this. I'm not suggesting he doesn't, but there are reasons why it can make it difficult. And obviously, we have to have certain things which they have built um, around billing and council um, fees and that kind of thing. Um, but they're definitely going to be very much um, now, um, you know, going to be looked at to see how 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 it works out. Yeah, that's interesting. It, it's um, it, it's it's funny because they're the well my, my perception is there haven't been a lot of new entrants into the whole sort of practice management case management uh, sector for a while now when there were you know of course a surge of them for a while um, yeah. but I think we're starting to see some more activity uh, there and it'd be interesting to see um, what the market tolerance for these and what how they how they try and kind of distinguish themselves and, and position themselves to get into uh, what's now becoming a more mature market. Uh, yeah, I think the issue is because they're so big, <clears throat> and um, we know we've seen this with other companies like Microsoft, where legal you know we we think we're really super important, and obviously we want them to think that we're really important, and actually for some some of the big um, companies legal isn't even a vertical right so so the the issue can be um you know how much focus do they give it and um you know 
and, and are they serious? Are they committed? You know, do they have the right people? Do they understand the industry? Do they, you know, and do they, are they going to, um, and actually, so I'm, I'm a bit sort of lacking in terms of communication with Oracle. Um, they're sort of, I think, being quite, yeah, I think being a little bit um, vague, to be quite honest with you, but be interesting. Hopefully we'll get some more detail. Um, and I think, I think it needs more, you're right, that sector of the market needs more competition. And um, so potentially it's a good thing. Um, but yeah. we've obviously we've obviously seen seen this before, where these big systems um, can be a complete nightmare. Um, so it would be interesting to see how smooth it is. Well, and the other yeah. the other trend is often that you see these once the big systems get inter interested in the space, they just start buying some of these smaller um, niche right. companies. Um, I I'm neglected to mention that on that on the latest call there there were there was a group from um, Maricopa County in uh, Arizona and they're partnering they're using Webex right now for their um, their platform uh, but they're partnering with or they've uh, brought on for the record um, which is a video platform for courts for recording and archiving proceedings um, and but they've had to kind of boost that contract i looked it up it, they i think they announced it in the fall um and they've shifted that or put it on steroids and now they're working with for the record and microsoft to develop a custom platform uh for video proceed secure video proceedings um it, uh, remote proceedings so i it, i thought it was interesting that microsoft was you know one of the developers of this platform you know this this uh this county in Arizona. Yeah, and Microsoft had for a long time stayed away from the legal, stayed away from legal and got into it and then got out of it again. It's kind of gone back and forth and it's a, a love-hate relationship with the with the legal industry. And a trust relationship. You've got, obviously you've got, it's a huge trust, isn't it, for those core, yeah. you know, the core systems particularly, so. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 uh, I spent a, a, a lot of time this week speaking to couple of different uh, companies in, in the kind of case management, practice management space. Um, and it, it was it was interesting doing that. Uh, one of them I, I talked to, um, that I, the one I wrote about uh, was this company GrowPath, which is um, pretty much kind of focused. I don't think they necessarily like to say this, but they're pretty much focused on personal injury uh, firms, on, on case management for, for personal injury firms. But they had uh, the feature they were talking about this week was this lead scoring tool. So, it, you know, this is kind of focused on a, on a firm where phone calls are coming in and they've got specialists sitting there, you know, manning the phone lines. And as they're, as the uh, specialists are interviewing the prospects and, and typing up notes and, and filling out these forms, um, the, there's there's an algorithm running that's that's basically scoring the lead the whole time and showing this this numerical score on the screen of the intake specialist. So the intake specialist, and this is all based on um, parameters that the law firm defines and sets for what's important to them, what kind of cases they're looking for, maybe dollar value, you know, maybe type of case, whatever. But so the uh, the uh, uh, intake specialist can you know, as opposed to having to sort of take the intake and then say, okay, I'm going to go, you know, we'll, we'll get back to you. We'll, we'll go, we'll have one of our attorneys review this and follow up or something. 
by which time the the lead might have like called the next firm and, and you know signed up with them or something. So this basically lets the intake specialist say, okay, this is one we know we want based on our parameters, based on the score that we have, and can then right away initiate either a follow-up with a with an attorney or you know, even push a button and send out a retainer agreement and do an e-signature or something. Uh, so it's kind of a clever tool. I mean, it's it's pretty uh, a pretty specific and focused tool, but I think it shows some of the ways that uh, companies are trying to come up with, um, you know, come up with unique ways to distinguish their products in, in this space. Uh, and I, I think that's kind of the, na the name of the game right now. Um, yeah. I think um, it's slightly different, but so I think Intap, um, you know, are in a weird way trying to do a similar thing. Perhaps with, I'm not, I'm not familiar as familiar with as you with Greybuck, but they're, they're sort of drawing together lots of information from lots of different sources to enable law firms to assess very quickly um, whether they want to be working with this client or that client, um, in order to. So, they, I don't think they, they perhaps label it as a sort of scoring tool, but in, in effect, they're actually doing a very similar thing. You know, they're enabling the firm to sort of work out what their top leads are, you know, what their top clients are for all these different reasons across all of the different part, you know, people working with them. And, um, and, uh, sort of, and in effect, I think it achieves the same thing. Yeah. Um, a couple of other things we could have talked about. Um, we're getting on in time. Anything else anybody really wants to talk about this week? Nah. <laughs> it was sort of a quiet week, I felt. Yeah. Like. It was a quiet week from a from a legal tech news sort of. Yeah, standpoint. in terms I mean, of news, certainly. The rest of all else is going to hell around us. But uh, Although, but, I, I mean, I think as we pointed out, most of the things that are going to hell had huge tech implications, right. just not maybe exactly. legal tech. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, and 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 the response. I mean, it's just it's yeah. You know, they were either spurred or, um, yeah, spurred on by the technology for sure. Um, yeah, it's it's a definitely some interesting times. Yeah. All right. Well, we will uh, we will uh, let people begin their weekends. Thank you. Well, <laughs> thanks thank for you doing so it. Much. And uh, thanks right. to everybody in the audience for listening. Thanks, See guys. You. See you next week. See you next week. Bye. -bye. Bye.